Welcome everyone to Prion. Uh, we might have a few more people uh, joining us, but I'm so happy to see all of you here and to know also a little bit about many of your backgrounds. We have together a wonderful group of uh, people with very uh, mixed experiences and, uh, and interests, so it's going to be a very exciting uh, morning uh, where we plan to reimagine refugee education. Uh, we will draw loosely on uh, Paolo Freiger's uh, Pedagogy of Hope, which we appreciate for its focus on visionary and transformative learning that takes place in the classroom or in interactions between educators and learners, but at the same time also really focuses on larger structural transformations. Um, my name is Cindy Horst. I am a research professor here at PRIO, and I have been the a project investigator or the primary investigator of the Rebuild project, together with my Harvard-based colleague Sarah Dryden Peterson. She hosted an international interactive virtual conference yesterday. I think some of you were there, uh, but I think it's also taped, so you might have a chance to see it later. Uh, today we meet in a more intimate in-person space, and I must say personally, I'm very excited about that, that we have the connections. I think yesterday it was really impressive how much interaction was able to take place between Kenya and Lebanon and Norway and the US. Um, but still, there was no food. There were no informal introductions, getting to know new people. So, uh, so really wonderful that we can actually just make, meet here. And we won't have the virtual today to relate to. But the uh, event will be taped audio taped, so for those who miss it, they can listen to it later. Uh, we've ordered plenty of food, both breakfast and lunch, in a very short period, so please, uh, I hope you have appetites. Uh, but it's really to, uh, to have more of an informal uh, atmosphere and to get to know each other and learn collectively. And I think we can only do that by spending time and by sharing and eating together. There'll be um, food from Cafe Mella, for lunch, so be ready for that. Don't eat too much. Um, but please help yourself also during the discussions and feel at home. During the first part of the morning, we will briefly present some of our findings, both in a traditional way of um, PowerPoint, uh, but also through short videos. Then a panel of uh, practitioners and researchers will reflect on the relevance of what we have talked about and what we've learned for their everyday practice and also in different contexts. Uh, we are talking mainly about Syrian refugees in Lebanon and Somali refugees in Kenya, but also then returning to Somalia. But what about, how is this relevant for uh, hosting and educating Ukrainian refugees in Norway, for example, or, uh, or in Poland for that matter? Um, during the last part of the morning, we'll move to smaller groups and we'll have a setup where we, each of us will discuss more about, okay, how is this uh, relevant, but also can we think visionary? Can we think about all the challenges and all the issues that we've learned about if I would be in a position to really engage in creative action and think outside the box, what would I do, say, as a teacher or... So, uh, so be ready also to engage and to participate this morning. Uh, 
because that's really a chance to learn from each other. So I will start myself with a brief overview of the project Rebuild. So we were fascinated by a number of puzzles and challenges. So one thing is that education is a tool that states use to develop good citizens. Uh, but how do regional host states integrate refugees who may never become citizens in their national education system? How can refugee children in their community be supported to build stable futures when it's really unclear where those futures will be? And I think now for all of you here, uh, seeing some of the things, the events evolve, uh, un unfold in, uh, in Ukraine, you can really also relate to that. Where will these kids be in six months? Where will they be in two years? We don't know. And then how do local, national and international educational initiatives compare with each other and how do they collaborate or compete? These are all questions that we are really interested in and that we've explored over the last couple of years in our research but also in these kind of interactions with practitioners. Uh, and when I say we, this is our team. Uh, I think you see Hassan and Abdirahman here live and myself, so you'll learn more about, uh, about us uh, in a minute. And then uh, the Harvard team was led by Sarah Dryden-Peterson, so that was the team that worked on Syrian uh, refugee education in, uh, in Lebanon, uh, together with the Vidu Shopka, Carmen Geha, and Jumana Talhuk. And in Kenya, we also worked with Caroline Digangu, who actually unfortunately passed away during the project. Um, we focused on two of the largest populations of refugees, Syrians and Somalis. And we conducted fieldwork, like I said, in, in Lebanon, specifically in Beirut, in 2018 and 19. And then in East Lee, it's a neighborhood in Nairobi, uh, the Dadaab refugee camps in Kenya, and then Mogadishu in Somalia, all in different periods in 2019. The work in the DAP, which was done by Dr. Researcher Hassan Aden, uh, was followed up also by virtual engagements. Uh, we engaged in ethnographic fieldwork. We did observations in classrooms. We conducted interviews with pupils, with their parents, with their teachers. Uh, we analyzed textbooks, and we collected writing prompts and all kinds of other practical exercises from the students. Uh, welcome, and I think it's still possible to find some, uh, some seats uh, at the different tables. Uh, the COVID-related global lockdown did prevent us from doing more field work, but we're also confident that the data that we did collect uh, does provide us rich insights nevertheless. And of course, we're already thinking about follow-up projects that we could be uh, doing if the Research Council still has money. <laughs> um, the very first um, uh, takeaway that I would like to, uh, to talk about is whether it's possible for us to replace a place-based understanding and approach with an opportunity-based approach. Citizenship studies identifies three elements of citizenship. So we're not just talking about the passport. We're talking about rights and duties, 
Secondly, participation. And then membership and belonging. So citizenship is more than the legal dimension, but it's also to do what it means to be a good citizen uh, who belongs and participates in the wider nation. Education is a central tool for nation states in teaching these three elements. We learn to be good citizens who know their rights and duties through the curriculum, through the pedagogy, and through the everyday interactions in the classroom. Um, so this begs then the question, where does that leave those who are not citizens and may never be, including refugees? But I'm also thinking, of course, there are all kinds of groups that are minoritized and excluded from the nation state. So I think there's a lot of interesting comparisons there as well. Rigid national understandings of the three elements of citizenship are problematic because in reality, civic participation and belonging happens below the nation-state level, as well as beyond the nation-state level. Challenges furthermore arise when futures are just thought in terms of particular places. Because in reality, you see that the students that we spoke to have fluid ideas of futures that include these kind of durable solutions that are talked about. So they include at one point return, uh, local integration, resettlement at different stages. And it really depends on what's happening, say, for Kenyan refugees or for Somali refugees in Kenya. Maybe the government talks about shutting down the camps and that shifts perspectives. Maybe there's been a bomb blast in Mogadishu, that shifts perspectives. So it's not a static idea of where the future will be. And on top of that, of course, there's a future of transnationalism because all these things are connected. And there are networks and activities that cross these different places because different family members will be spread different places. Different livelihood opportunities will be spread in these different places. So these very static ideas about these futures as kind of geographically, either you return or you integrate or you resettle, I think in reality we realize is much more fluid and complex. The project team has explored what happens if we focus not on these ge geographies, but rather on opportunities and how these opportunities play out over time in different contexts. Then secondly, uh, we learned about the importance of refugee-led initiatives. Refugees bring resources, including educational resources, when they leave a war-torn country. They also acquire, of course, new resources after flight. Uh, in their country of residence, and that's through study, it's through work. Uh, we know that the resources of refugees are far too often not seen, not recognized, not acknowledged, not valued. And that includes also in monetary terms. Currently, more than half of the primary schools and secondary schools in the DAB are fee-paying schools that are established, funded, and managed by refugees. The rest are tuition free schools that are established and funded by UNHCR and managed by INGOs. Kenya is rather unique, actually, I think, but some of you might uh, challenge me on that, uh, in that they actually accredit these refugee-led schools. So they allow the students to follow the national exams. So they come out with Kenyan primary and secondary school certificates. Previous graduates were central in setting up these schools, making use of their own educational opportunities to educate the next generation. And we will learn more about this from Hassan in a minute. 
Then thirdly, responsibility, rethinking responsibility and accountability. Who is best placed to guarantee education to children whose educational paths have been disrupted by armed conflict and flight? Regional refugees increasingly live in protracted situations, I think on average 15 years, where long-term investments in education are needed. After all, it takes an average of 12 years before people, students get their certificates. Um, while it's clear that this long-term investment in education is necessary, the question is who is responsible for those investments? And also then who's accountable? for the education of refugees. And I think it's a very tricky one. And I'm sure we won't find the answer here this morning. Um, refugee education in Kenya is currently funded by international donors and implemented by a coalition of the host government, UNHCR, and INGOs, by and large within short-term planning cycles. And for those of you who are following the debate on the... Uh, uh, the Research Council, then we know what are the implications of these kind of short-term planning cycles. Uh, the Dadaab camps have existed for 30 years. At the same time, a private sector that is run by the refugees is now also being set up. So the refugees are paying for their own education. All these actors will have to think long-term in their investments, and they have to keep two thoughts in mind at the same time. Invest in local resources in a way that will be used for uh, decades, irrespective of where the refugees will be. And then secondly, invest in long-term flexible resources that can be moved with the refugees. And this demands that we see refugees as assets and we invest in their human capital rather than seeing them as victims and burdens. Um, I'll just leave that up. These are some of the... It's, it's kind of as terrifying to me as it is to you because many of them are in progress. Um, but this is what, uh, what some of this uh, is based on. So we'll now show an animation uh, which is called An Agent of Change, which highlights the long-term nature of educational investments. And there's also a policy brief on your desk if you're interested. Uh, the story takes place in the Dadaab camps of, of Kenya, which was set up in 1991. And since 1994, refugee children were integrated in the Kenyan national education system first on primary level and then in 2000 on secondary level. So the first secondary graduates in the DAB finished in 2004. That's almost 20 years ago. Uh, and they spent 12 years of their lives to obtain their secondary certificate. So in the animation we will show, we've tried to capture this long-term reality based on the testimonies of the students and teachers that Hassan spoke, spoke with in his research. The animation was created by Positive Negatives, and it was written by, or the story was written by Hannah Ali and illustrated by Victor, Victor Ndula. Enjoy. All right. Um, hopefully let that sink in a lit, little bit and then I'll invite Hassan to um, tell us more about this refugee-led education uh, that is part of his doctoral and also to say that he has just handed in, yes, his thesis for his mock defense. So he looks a lot happier than he did just recently. Thank you very much, uh, everyone. Uh, we are actually honored to have you with us today. So the topic of... Uh, 
I'm going to talk about now, basically on formal refugee-led education initiative is a topic that's greatly dear to my heart. I think this is one of the significant contribution in my thesis, I would say, uh, because uh, this is a topic that hasn't been explored. I think, I don't know, uh, as Cindy has mentioned before, this is a unique case of Kenya, uh, as there are no other accredited refugee-led education initiatives in other places. So, but uh, before getting further into the presentation, I would like to say on how did we get here. My name is Hassan Aden. Uh, I am a PhD candidate at the University of Gothenburg. Uh, and a doctoral researcher here at Prio. But uh, there was a journey before that, uh, uh, which basically started in the, uh, in the foundational years from the DAP camps. Uh, so I grew up in the DAP camps, where I'm doing my research now, uh, and spent the first 20 years of my foundational years. I went primary school and secondary education there and uh, had the privilege to move to Sweden. And then that's where my academic journey started. So I went to Malmö University for my bachelor's and, studied, and uh, studied international relations, and then moved to Lund for the, for the, for the master's, where I studied global studies uh, and majored in political science. And then that's how I came into this doctoral program. So, uh, during the my research, I had also the opportunity to spend six months in the DAP camps and uh, had the special privilege of staying inside the camps and also spent like every day visiting those schools. So I spent, I was focusing on two schools basically. One that is uh, led by the refugees, which will be the focus of the presentation, and another school that's led by the UNHCR. So the two schools are distinct in the sense that for the refugee-led schools, they are established, funded, and managed by refugees themselves. Whereas the UNHCR secondary schools are basically, or other schools are also established, funded by the UNHCR. So they are like, the refugee schools are private, they pay tuition fee, while the UNHCR schools are uh, uh, free schools. So that is the distinct, or the differences. So... I will be, I mean, this topic is a whole article, so I won't be able to talk about all the details, but I will try to scratch the surface so that you have at least see the flavor, and then you will have more time to engage on the conversation. So I would like to focus on the emergence of those schools. Why did they emerge? Uh, what were the underlying circumstances that led to the emergence of those schools? And, and the functioning of those schools, how do they function? And why do they function? Cindy has mentioned initially that they are relatively good in terms of performances. And why do they perform better than those UNICR schools? So those are the things that I want to at least try to talk about. Uh, before moving to that, I, I would like to say a few things on the context of the research, that is the DAP camps. Uh, as you may know, the DAP is situated in the northeastern part of Kenya. That is, if you can see where it is located uh, in the northern part of Kenya. Uh, there has been some change over the period of time for the fact that 
for those cycles that you see EVO2 and Cambio OS were some extensions uh, that were established over time uh, because of, uh, of several crises that happened in Somalia for different periods, which led to massive influx. If you can see the graph here, like 2011, the, sorry, uh, the population has almost reached half a million. So there were like two subsequent crises. One was the 2011 farming crisis in Somalia. And uh, before that, there was an Ethiopian invasion in Somalia, which also led to massive influx. So, uh, so now, if I go back to the, uh, the map there, so those two camps are now closed. They were closed 2018, so they don't exist anymore. But in the dub, we have now three functional camps. Tagahale, uh, Hagadera, and Ifo camp. Those are the camps that are operational now. Uh, and currently, uh, the DAP hosts 234,000 refugees, so which is far much lower than the numbers we had in 2019. So the refugees have been returning. I see and Amir Abdelham will be telling us more on that later on. And... Uh, so when it comes to education, uh, as I have briefly mentioned, we have uh, 44 primary schools and uh, 17 secondary schools. So out of these, 22 primary schools are the UNHCR schools, and uh, six secondary schools are also run by the UNHCR. So two in each camp. So UNHCR has two, uh, two, uh, um, two, two schools, two secondary schools in each camp. But for the refugee schools, we have 22 integrated academies which principally mean primary schools. But the difference here is that those schools combine the Kenyan national curriculum and informal curriculum, implying that they have Islamic religious education on the side. So, and that's why they are called integrated academies. And I will be talking about why they are called integrated academies and why do they have a curriculum, two different curriculums later on. And they have 11 secondary schools and uh, in the camps. So there are, some camps have like more secondary schools than the other. But uh, the way we can see, there are more than those schools that are run by the UNHCR. So there are actual power in the camps that cannot be hidden in that sense. Uh, so the emergence. Why did they emerge? There's, there are so many reasons that have uh, the underlining on why those schools have been established. But some of the key reasons that I have tried to focus on basically relates to the need of integrated, I mean, good quality secular and religious education. Before the establishment of the integrated academies, what used to happen was refugee children used to go to two different systems of education. They go to madrasas in the morning and secular schools in the afternoon. But that didn't work over time because the UNHCR schools require that the child has to, I mean, when, they, when students reach the upper primary classes, they are required to go back to school in two shifts. So that implies that they are not able to study the Islamic religious education. So in order to deal with that problem, parents have made an intervention, uh, uh, the community generally has made an intervention to ensure that their children can at least have both education. And that's why they established the integrated academies 
in, 20, in 2008. So that's basically how they emerged. So the second reason uh, for the emergence of those relates to the discontent with, on the deterioration of performances or the quality of education generally in the UNHCR schools. And uh, because of multiple crises in, in the UN system, basically, in terms of the funding crisis was one of the major reasons. And uh, there has been a challenge on the funding for education, which led to limited resources in terms of learning resources uh, and overcrowded classes, which led to also poor performances in the education and poor quality education in general. But there was also another critical challenge in Kenya for some time, which relates to the security challenge. Uh, as you may know, there were sometimes infiltration of the Al-Shawabs in the northeastern province, which also had a significant impact on the presence of Kenyan teachers, basically the trained teachers in the camps. So that was also had some impacts on the quality of education and the performances of students in the national exams, basically that is the KCPE and the KCSE. And in relation to that, there's also another challenge on the physical mobility of refugees, whereby the, even whenever, I mean, those parents who at least would wish to send their children to better schools outside of the camps are not able to do that, principally because the Kenyan government doesn't allow refugees to move out of the camps. And as a result of that, uh, as refugees have also decided, maybe it would be a good idea that we start our own schools. And then those schools we are able to manage the quality and do the necessary oversight uh, so that we can ensure that our children can get a good quality education. So in terms of the functioning, as I have mentioned previously, uh, the refugee-led schools are relatively in good quality. But how can we prove that? We can, I mean, one way I have been basically arguing in relation to that is that the performances the national, in the national exams, basically, that is the KCB and the KCSE, we have been observing that the refugee-led schools are performing relatively better than those that are run by the UNHCR schools. For example, like the 2021 KCSE results, which was released some weeks back, uh, we have seen such a magnificent results that the students have produced uh, uh, in the refugee-led schools. So... Uh, and we have also, I've also observed personally during my fieldwork and, and in relation to my visits in different schools that students at the refugee-led schools have relatively, I mean, have good literacy skills compared to uh, the UNHCR schools was also something that I have observed personally. So, but why do they function effectively? What are the circumstances that enable them to perform better uh, than those schools? One, it relates to the effective service delivery uh, through strict administrative oversight. What I know, I mean, I have observed basically is that the system of administration between the UNHCR schools and the refugee schools are quite different from each other, whereas we have the school administration from the CEO, that is the school director, up to the teacher's level, present in the school compound in the, in the refugee-led schools, that's not the case for the UNHCR schools, uh, be it be in the primary schools or in the secondary schools. Normally, I mean, not normally, all have their headquarters in the European countries, like the WTI, which runs the secondary schools as its headquarters in the UK, and the Lutheran World Federation, which runs 
um, the primary school's house. It is headquartered in, I think, Netherlands or somewhere. So they are like placed in different places in Europe. So they are not placed in the camps, uh, even though they have another regional uh, office in Nairobi. So which is also very far from from uh, from uh, from the camps. So one exceptionally interesting thing I have realized uh, in the refugee schools is that the CEO, that is the director of the school, is the one who does the actual inspection of teachers and ensuring that whether that teachers attend to students and, and students get the actual time with their teachers. So that is actually important because what I have realized in the UNHCR schools was that sometimes teachers do not attend to classes. And those who do, who do that may use very much limited number of, yeah, instead of 45 minutes, for example, they will maybe using 25 minutes or so, which is actually very limited than expected. Another exceptionally different thing uh, in the, with, with the refugee-led schools is that they have effective receptionists. So basically, we, I mean, we don't have any receptionists in the, in the UNHCR, so it is like, the hierarchy starts from the school principal. So it is the principal that's in charge of everything. And, uh, and from the principal, we have the teachers, and that is it. So, but the role of receptionist in the refugee-led schools is that sometimes students skip from school. And in order to ensure that students attend classes or school, it is the work of the receptionist to make visit to classes and take the roll call. And then whenever he finds any student missing, he's the one to be in touch with the, with the parents. So students don't miss classes, and that's why they are performing better than those schools. I think, I think that's something very crucial also. Uh, another important thing which is actually worth considering is the direct accountability to parents. So it is very critical uh, that parents are engaged in the learning process of their children. So, if I compare the two systems again, I have also realized that there's a better engagement or active engagement of parents in the refugee-led schools compared to the UNHCR schools. Because what parents work, I mean, both sides were complaining basically that there is less engagement on both sides. If you ask parents whether they are, have been engaged, they will tell you no. Uh, they haven't been engaged well. And if you ask the teachers or the school administration on the UNHCR, what you will find basically is that parents are not showing up for meetings whenever they are invited. So it's like there is a tension in that sense or some sense of conflict. Another also critically important thing that we need to recognize is that parents sense ownership because parents have engaged in those schools from the beginning. They pay for their children's school fee. So they have that sense of ownership and responsibility towards the school. And the fact that, I mean, the reason why they are paying for their children's tuition fee is to ensure that their children can get a good result at the end of their final, uh, uh, final years in the school. So that is something that is also very important to consider. Another important thing, which also why they were performing better or are more effective in their running is empowerment of students. Uh, those schools give students a better chance to engage with the school administration as well as in terms of uh, uh, their learning processes. 
So they have, students have also their own school government or student government who normally engage directly with the school administration. And that gives them an opportunity to be able to say whether they are learning well in the class or whether, I mean, if there are any other things that they are not satisfied in regards to their education. So in a way, I would argue that those schools are more democratically organized than those in the UNHCR schools, whereby it is, everything comes from the top. Uh, so and students have very much limited opportunity to exercise some sense of agency and some sense of power. Uh, and the other thing which is also critically important is the proximity to the final decision makers. And as I've mentioned before, this, the direct, from the director to the school administrator, that is the school manager, the school principal, and the deputy principal are all based in the school compound. So that gives them the opportunity to be able to reach directly to the school administration. Unlike in the UNHCR schools, whereby you may never have the opportunity to reach to the director of the school. So the only person whom you can talk to is the school principal, and, uh, uh, and the school principal may not be able to reach also directly to the executive, but he has to reach out in between, and that might take a long process before a certain challenge that students face can be addressed. So those are critical issues that we need to open our mind on. So before I end on, on my... Uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> sorry for that. I want to say one more thing. One critical thing, yesterday we were talking about, and today we are talking about reimagining refugee education. So I think one thing I would argue basically is not the reimagining the pedagogy, but reimagining the educational leadership. How do we govern refugee education is something that is very critical. Should we continue to be providing only access to education in a more mediocre level, but you want to give refugees a more agency, a more power, yeah? so that they can be able to be, sustain themselves and run for, I mean, leave their full potential to be uh, independent over the period of time. So the, what we need to consider is, is how we can transform the governance system uh, in refugee education. Thank you. Cindy's looking at me. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. And I can see the urgent questions, but unfortunately we're running a little bit behind, so uh, we'll go straight to Abdirahman, uh, who's a doctoral candidate at the Institute for Development Studies, uh, IDS, in Nairobi, and also at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. And he was responsible for the shorter studies in Nairobi and in Thank you, Sydney, for having me this morning here. Uh, by now, it is clear for us what life looks like for uh, a student or a graduate at a refugee camp in Kenya, specifically at Dadaab. Having watched the, the animation videos of uh, refugee students and even hearing from uh, personal experience of Hassan, who lived there for 20 years and how he has... Uh, uh, found his feature after resettling in uh, Sweden. Uh, and this presentation of mine uh, this morning will focus on what we just uh, heard from the animation, the refugee uh, student who uh, indicated having uh, uh, 
have, have been liking to go back to his home country to develop Somalia and to find feature uh, of return, as uh, Sydney has already indicated the three dimensions of, uh, of features. So uh, my name is Abdurrahman Idle Ali, a PhD student at the uh, University of Copenhagen and uh, a local university in my home country, University of Nairobi. Uh, I will be particularly presenting uh, what life is like for graduates that have returned to their home country. That's where we conducted uh, research in Mogadishu and uh, tried to talk to uh, students who have returned from the Dab refugee camp after uh, having their education in the refugee camps. Uh, it's important to note that uh, refugees have lived, Somali refugees have lived in Kenya, particularly in the Dab, for over now 30 years when the central government of Somalia collapsed in the year 1991. Uh, they have been accommodated in the neighboring country of Kenya and particularly the northeastern Kenya, which is uh, a Somali uh, dominated region of, of Kenya, uh, bordering Somalia, not far from the Somali border. Uh, for these 30 years, uh, the refugees have coexisted uh, in harmonious manner with the Kenyan population, although they were restrictly uh, living in restricted camps, in, in refugee camps, but in general, there were no tensions. Uh, but uh, uh, mid the year 2000s, uh, security issues changed in Somalia. Uh, the Islamic Courts Union have taken control of uh, uh, Central and South Somalia. Uh, they have uh, been fighting the warlords and uh, Having taken control of Somalia, they had also <coughs> the armed wings uh, of the ICU called Al-Shabaab, who are uh, somehow extremists. Uh, the, uh, the, the Islamic Courts Union were toppled by Ethiopian forces, which have fought them in Somalia. But uh, immediately, the Al-Shabaab, uh, which is an extremist or terrorist wing of these courts, have also started coming up. They have taken uh, many parts of southern Somalia again and uh, they also uh, started uh, uh, infiltrating even uh, neighboring countries like Kenya, whereby they have uh, started committing some uh, crimes uh, inside Kenya. And uh, the year 2011, they have also attacked the refugee camp, the Dadaab, and they have uh, kidnapped some international staff there. And that has resulted in the decision of the Kenyan government invading Somalia to protect their interest in the porous borders between Kenya and Somalia. That has been a, a life-changing decision for the refugees as well, uh, because from that time, the Al-Shabaab in the border uh, side of Somalia have been infiltrating continuously and uh, uh, committing uh, issues in, within Kenya. Uh, this has led now uh, uh, problem for the refugees because the Kenyan government uh, started indicating that uh, the terrorist activities are being mobilized within the refugee camps, the Dadaab, though there was no evidence to, to show that uh, issue. So uh, from there, the Kenyan government started indicating that the refugees should relocate back to their home country. Uh, this was not immediately possible, but they have agreed with the UNHCR to have a return modality which is uh, sensitive to the human rights. And uh, 
this return modality has uh, led to the relocation of around 85,000 of Somalis back into Somalia on their own will. Uh, and part of these people who have been returning were graduates who have uh, uh, done their schools in refugee camps for the past 20 years. Uh, having gone back to Somalia, they have uh, returned to Somalia in order to get uh, opportunities uh, because uh, the difference with the refugee camps uh, that uh, they are citizens in Somalia and they had better opportunities in getting professional employment whereby they have uh, better remuneration package, although they also uh, give up a lot of uh, other uh, opportunities in, in the refugee camps, including uh, opportunities to resettle in a third country and even uh, a secure environment where they were not written uh, physically. Uh, this one of the courts uh, from uh, Liban we interviewed and he indicates how uh, he looks forward in uh, changing the lives of his people, contributing back home and even getting better life uh, chances in Somalia. So uh, what is life like uh, uh, for the graduates in Somalia? Uh, the education they received in the refugee camps uh, usually opens them doors that are not available within the refugee camps. Uh, they usually get uh, uh, decent livelihoods, uh, making them independent financially uh, and even individually. Uh, they have better chances of getting employed in Somalia due to the uh, education they have received in Kenya because they have recognized certificates uh, having Somalia being in turmoil for quite some time and uh, no formal recognized institutions uh, in Somalia, they had the advantage of coming up with recognized certificates where international organizations could easily verify the authenticity of these documents to uh, have them employed. Uh, Kenya uh, having English as the uh, first language in schools gave them also the upper hand in having uh, good command in English language, which their peers in Somalia did not have, so they could easily get employed by international organizations or, or, or the UN. Uh, the kind of employments they usually received in, in Somalia include the teaching profession, working uh, for NGO, NGOs, uh, participating in government, whether it is at parliament level or the executive. We have refugee returnees who have uh, even assumed the position of uh, cabinet secretaries or ministers in the Somali government. They had representatives in the parliament. They worked for the private sector like the telecommunication and every other aspects of, uh, of life in, in Mogadishu. And uh, this, this court that also states how uh, the difference between what they earned in uh, refugee camps and even in Somalia. Uh, this. Uh, interview says he started earning USD 200, then moved to 400 to 500 USD. And this has been a teaching uh, profession, which is the least paid uh, compared to other uh, professions. Uh, this is in comparison to what is paid uh, uh, a graduate teacher in refugee camp, which uh, is around $80 per month. So they also have better working conditions compared to the refugee camps. Uh, they have insurances and uh, predictability of employment and all these other aspects. Refugees uh, contribute back to their families in Dadaab and even in Somalia after they are employed. Uh, they tend also to contribute in nation building, capacity building to those uh, 
uh, found in Somalia, educating uh, the young tasks, and so on. So uh, it's not all uh, straight. They also have challenges while in uh, their home country. Uh, there have been competition for limited opportunities. Uh, of course, uh, their numbers has been increasing over time and getting employed has not been a straight path. Uh, Somalia is still uh, uh, coming uh, out of, uh, of, of insecurities and uh, there is continued threat of explosions, assassinations, and uh, insecurities in, in, the, in their home country. Uh, the process of recruitment and getting employed is also uh, not uh, free from corruption and uh, nepotism, favorism, and whom you know. That has been a challenge to some of the graduates who maybe have no uh, immediate contacts in the home country. So uh, with all these challenges, the refugee graduates have been very happy uh, going back to the home country uh, because of the citizenship rights they have in the home country, which overrides all these other negative uh, aspects. Uh, in general, we are saying uh, refugee uh, graduates in the DAB camp uh, uh, experience frustrations after uh, graduating and not having uh, decent uh, livelihoods or employments. And going back to Somalia gives them enhanced uh, uh, the privilege of citizenship, which uh, allows them to move freely around and get uh, the kind of employment they deserve. So uh, achieving these rights and civic participation remains key to young people's aspirations. But ideas about how to achieve those changes uh, usually depends on the geography of citizenship as they uh, do better in Somalia than in uh, a country that hosts them as refugees. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we'll go to um, the second animation. Uh, there is another aspect that the, the study really showed, especially the study in, uh, in Lebanon, which is the key role of teachers. We also already saw it a little bit in the animation. Um, our, our colleagues focus closely on classroom observations and they explore the, the role of teachers in enabling students to deal with the mismatches that they face, that we, we have explored today. The animation was created again by Positive Negatives in close collaboration with the researchers, and the script was written by Iyad Abu Shabat and illustrated by Sausan Nugala. I really feel bad because we've uh, spent more, uh, we're a little bit behind and I don't want to rush things. But um, what I suggest is that people, you, if you want some drinks or something to eat, go ahead. There's still more there. But in the meantime, we'll, uh, we'll start with the panel uh, so that we, uh, we can have time for discussions uh, while you sit and take in the uh, the animations i can see it's it's very powerful to uh, to have the visuals have the music have uh, everything else can i ask people to find their seats again so that we can uh, listen to this uh, distinguished panel i'm very excited to uh, to have you here and to have you also reflect with us on some of our findings and uh, uh, the work we've done so um, besides um, Hassan, who's introduced himself, and maybe I'll uh, uh, go like this. So Gonit Cohen is Senior Education Advisor 
for Save the Children, uh, with international experience from Sudan and elsewhere. And then Anna-Marie uh, Aibi, she teaches Norwegian for 16 to 19-year-old pupils who have recently arrived in Norway, and this is at Kuben Videvonne uh, Secondary. And then my colleague Marta Nielsen, uh, she's senior researcher at Prio, and she is also in this particular capacity, she's also the researcher of the Educate project, which focuses on improving education for Rohingya refugees from Myanmar living in Bangladesh. So I hope you agree that we have a very nice mix of people to, uh, to reflect on this uh, topic with us. And uh, one of the things that I've been very occupied with is also to really see how can we learn across, because very often we think in silos. So you have the international humanitarian, and then you have what happens in Norway, and those are two totally different fields. So it's also a bit of a challenge maybe, but I, I really would like us to think uh, beyond. So I'm going to just start with a very open question just to the three of you uh, about just to say something about your own experience and how that relates to the topic of today. So maybe starting with Ronit. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to such an interesting topic. Um, as uh, Cindy mentioned, my name is Ronit Cohen. I work for Save the Children and have been doing so the past seven years. But when you ask me the question, like, why... What is my relation to this topic? I had to think some years back. And one of my first jobs was actually to start teaching Norwegian to refugees in Norway. And I have since then been working with refugees in different contexts, uh, actually also in Dadaab and Sudan and South Sudan and other contexts as well. But when thinking back on my first job teaching refugees in Norway, I reflecting last night on some of the challenges and first of all I was thinking about how challenging that was to have different students in one class from 10 different countries 10 different languages and some of them had a education background they've been studying for several years they could read books in one day and some could not even write a letter and all these children were in my class. Uh, they each had their individual story. Uh, some of them wanted to go back to their country, but they did not know when that would happen or if it would ever happen. So based on that experience, every time I travel, when I work abroad, I always talk to teachers in our education programs or when I'm in a country working. And... Now, when working for Save the Children, that is what I always want to do. I want to talk to the teachers. And reflecting upon that, I was thinking about one teacher I met in Sudan. So these are some of the pictures from my last deployment last year. I was working in, uh, in a camp, eastern Sudan, with refugees, mainly from Ethiopia. And I met one teacher, and I think about him today. And I wonder sometimes how he was actually coping. He was a refugee teacher. He was supporting the children who we were also providing literacy classes to in the camp. And he told me that he, he fled from everything. He did not even, he even had to flee from his phone. He came to Sudan with nothing. And he could not reach his parents. He could not reach his family. And they could not reach him. So he was trying to find a phone to actually call home. 
And I was thinking, how, how are you able to cope in class, coming to school every day and teaching Ethiopian children? And um, that made me also think that teachers, whether it's so crucial that we, as Save the Children, we work with teachers, we support them, we ensure that they have the right qualifications they need, and that we also take um, interest of, uh, remind ourselves of their well-being as well. So I think I'll end with that. That was just like a small introduction of this topic. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, hello. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, this has been very interesting so far. Um, I am, um, yeah, I am a teacher at Cuban Secondary School and I teach Norwegian for um, mainly refugees and also immigrant children. Uh, not children, but uh, young people between 16 and 19, 20 years old. Uh, I've been doing that for the last 16 years with uh, small <laughs> pauses in between. Um, I have mainly been uh, working with the love level um, or students that have um, either are um, illiterates or very low level education. So whenever we are looking at this and we are talking, I always have these glasses on <laughs> because my students have always been um, refugees that lack education uh, or uh, have like dyslectic challenges or like have um, had problems in school, haven't succeeded. So these are my glasses. I always worked with the love level students. Um, and the other pair of glasses that I also have is because Cuban secondary school is um, uh, the, um, it's the biggest vocational uh, high school in Norway. So uh, one thing is education, but also the practical education to professions is also a very important part of my identity as a teacher at Cuban Vidrigon School. Um, so this is, yeah, so, so that's sort of the glasses that I always carry with me. <laughs> and, uh, and I have also, um, very interesting with the pedagogy of hope, uh, that is the start of this seminar, since I also have a personal relationship to Brazil and Paulo Freire, which is part of my motivation for going into becoming a teacher in the first place. So, <laughs> wow. Um, um, it's 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 uh, was very beautiful these little films and very inspirational and I I I also watched the Syrian uh, little uh, movie and I it's I find it's really touching me the way the approaches and the situation for the two uh, for the female teacher and for the male teacher uh, and the way it's important to strengthen. Um, the role of the teacher uh, in every way, both uh, as to how they educate the children, because the, the male teacher, of course, he does the flip, uh, flip the classroom, where he comes like, now you teach me today. So it's the, how the, the level uh, of professionalism at the, teach, uh, the teachers have are so important. And also the hope. Uh, the female teacher, she's very tired and it's like let's just keep our heads low let's just accept the systems we are guests here and the Lebanese does not 
kind of like give us our space. But he's more like, no, let's just go on <laughs> and do our thing. Um, so it's very important, the role of the teacher. I, I have so much more I could say about that, but let's leave it there <laughs> for the moment. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for the for the invitation. Um, in our project on uh, Rohingya refugee education, so that in 2017 the Rohingya crisis was at the time the largest refugee crisis in the world, and it was a huge humanitarian operation. And the UN came in with their clusters of wash and shelter and health education, all that, and we set out to examine the role of quality education in mitigating the negative um, educational and socioeconomic, psychosocial uh, effects of forced displacement. And starting up our research, we realized that actually there is no quality education for this population. And there's a combination of uh, very, very firm government restrictions from the Bangladesh government who says, well, these people are going to go back to Myanmar, so they're not going to get any um, Bangla University uh, formal education, uh, and uh, the UN is then providing, they're not uh, allowed to have a curriculum, so they're providing a specific learning uh, framework, and it's basically just very, very uh, basic um, literacy skills and numeracy skills that these uh, children are provided, and also mainly for the youngest. In, in theory, it's up to 14, but in practice, it's usually um, the youngest um, population. So there's hundreds of thousands of children and youth who are not getting anything. But of course, as you mentioned, um, uh, Cindy, in the beginning, these, these refugees, they come with knowledge, they come with a background. And also relating to Hassan's work, um, the first thing that Rohingya teachers does do when they come uh, to the new camp is to set up structures of education. They start to, to do what they've been doing in their villages at home. They're starting to photocopy up uh, books from the Myanmar curriculum and they're constructing schools. And so, uh, and also university students that were forced back to the villages in 2012 in Myanmar, they're also picking up what they know and try to uh, communicate to the children. So you, what we found that there's a huge network of, um, or cons not huge, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a um, considerable network of smaller and larger educational networks that work together to try to give and provide education from the very low level to up to um, to high school level and they try to do certificate and doing all these things uh, underground so not in in pure secrecy but it's not uh, official and since December Last year, it's been communicated from the government of Bangladesh that it's not uh, any longer allowed to have private education for refugees. Of course, they're trying to do it still. Um, and w when we did the, the mapping of these networks back in 2019, we have followed up on a few and also newcomers that are providing um, online educational tools and trying to find ways to give some sort of uh, education to the children, but compared to the um, to the Kenyan case, and I will s agree, um, Cindy, that you're probably is right that this is a very unique example that you have this accredited refugee-led education. Um, that would have meant 
connect the world to a lot of large populations of refugees, including the Rohingya. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Okay, so we have very different contexts, very different levels, right? And we have like, I don't know, half an hour. Um, what I thought we could do is to really talk, like take one level and topic at a time and then also see, okay, so how did that play out in Sudan or Bangladesh or Kenya or Norway for that matter, uh, so that we have some, some kind of um, focus where everyone also thinks about what they found inspiring or a key opener or... And I would really like to start maybe with this teacher's role, because both of you have uh, referred to that. And um, I want to also ask the audience to think about, okay, when you think about the role of teachers, are, are there particular statements, are there particular ideas that come to mind, are there particular experiences you want to share or questions you have? And of course, the good thing is that we all can relate to education, right? We've all been educated and we've all had our different kind of teachers. So it's a, it's a general topic that we can all uh, relate to. But um, I want to have you think about that and raise your hand so that I know you have a question. And in the meantime, ask all of you, but maybe especially also those who, who did comment on, on the teacher's role, uh, to say, was there any kind of particular eye-opener or anything particular that you learned this morning and also, of course, watching the, um, the videos. And we sent you uh, also uh, briefs that Zaina uh, Bali has uh, developed on the basis of the, um, the project. So anything that you feel was particularly interesting uh, or also a, a question that you're left with after seeing all of this that relates specifically to the role of teachers. And you've talked already about the... The, the hope aspects, the um, uh, the psychological trauma that teachers might have, but um, but anything else that any of you would want to share while I look at everyone else as well. Um, I I I wonder a little bit about um, the teachers. Where where do they come from? <laughs> Uh, were they educated in Mogadishu or at universities in Kenya, or uh, how how do they become teachers? What what's what are their backgrounds in general? Or, so, yeah. Yeah, uh, excellent. Yeah. Uh, that is uh, interesting question indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, as you remember, those camps have existed for now three decades, uh, and. Uh, there has been always uh, an opportunities for tertiary education, even though they are very much limited. There have been some training for teachers uh, through uh, the Borderless Higher Education Program for Refugees. Uh, it is a consortium. It's a program that's run by a collaboration between Canadian universities and uh, uh, Kenyan universities. That is primarily Nairobi University and Kenyatta University. So. That program has been producing teachers at different level. Uh, they were training primary teachers uh, for diploma program and uh, a bachelor's degree uh, for secondary school teachers. And there were all, also some pastor's degree. So in that sense, you'll find some refugee teachers who are highly trained in that sense, uh, even though they don't get the actual opportunity within the refugee camp context. But those who work at the refugee-led schools 
are quite exceptionally different because they get the opportunity to earn a good salary, uh, precisely like the Kenyan nationals. So that is one unique thing I think we have missed to talk about. How are the refugee teachers different in the UNHCR schools when compared to those in, in the refugee-led schools? Because those in the UNHCR schools only get an incentive, $100, like the, we have seen in the animation, but that's different in the case of uh, the refugee schools. They get a decent salary that is based on their personal experiences and their certification. If you have a bachelor's degree, you have a certain limit that is based on the Kenyan level of payment. Uh, if you have a master's degree, then that also applies. So you can see the difference. I mean, refugees in that sense have been gaining some sense of power, you know, and that's why the aspect of the pedagogy, if I come back to that also, is critical because if teachers are empowered, if refugees are empowered, they will be able to help themselves out in the long term and they will be able to also fill those gaps that are left by, by the state and by the international humanitarian agencies. So which is actually what we are learning from those refugee-led schools principally. I think we have to also think about filling those gaps left by the state and the humanitarian agencies. also critical, I think. Thank you. Do you want to reflect on uh, the role of teachers and maybe also in relation to some of the things that were mentioned? So in terms of how we actually invest in them, how we train them, how we think about psychosocial support, but also very importantly, how we pay them, how we recognize their resources, etc. And I think what you're pointing to, Hassan, is also there are differences in how governments deal with that uh, and also how international uh, organizations deal with it, with this kind of idea of just providing an incentive because you're not allowed. So in, in Kenya, you're not refugees are not allowed to work. Uh, in Bangladesh, they're not actually even allowed to be. <laughs> so... <laughs> In in Norway, yeah. So of course, these kind of uh, structural uh, like uh, circumstances really make a difference as well. Um, Marta, yeah, I just want to. Um, it's really interesting to learn more about the, uh, your project, Hazan, and, and about the Kenyan experience. And I I think in in the context of Bangladesh, I what I think is the just the most mind blowing uh, tragedy of the situation is that lack of cooperation between uh, refugee-led uh, initiatives and the humanitarian operation. <laughs> and uh, because when it comes to, to the refugee themselves, they have everything that the UN agencies are lacking in providing good services. They have the local knowledge, contextual knowledge, uh, language competence, uh, they're part of the community, as you talked about. They have a very strong dedication and connection to the to the populations. Uh, while they have no resources, uh, and in in co contrary to to in, in uh, Kenya, they teachers are doing it basically on their spare in their spare time. So they're doing it more or less for free, um, and they have very little training. But but the sector has the or the UN. They have the the resources, the money, the training. They have the mo modern teaching uh, practices that these people also are asking for. That we they understand that they need to modernize their way of teaching, but they don't really have the the ability to do so. So they're really 
um, they really have so much to benefit in cooperation and still there is so much distrust and lack of cooperation and I find it to after now five years or whatever it is to be quite uh, extraordinary because the the um, humanitarian sector they they don't really have that local connection uh, and they're unwilling also to use their international power to push for the changes because of course a big big challenge here is the Bangladesh government who don't really want to to open up uh, rights for this population because they fear that um, basically there will come more refugees if they if it's too comfortable that's I think that's the thinking of the government at least um, but the but the the UNHCR and the UNICEF, that they are not able to kind of use their strength and power to push a little bit, um, slight little bit, uh, on the Bangladeshi government. That's also something I find quite extraordinary uh, and sad. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, I can just reflect on a couple of follow-up points for that. I mean... The Save the Children's mandate is, of course, to ensure interrupted education, equitable education, sustainable education for all children, and then we need to have the teachers in place, right? <laughs> but just reflecting back on Sudan, one example is that here we were using the ro local refugees in the camp to actually teach the children in the camp. But there are several dilemmas as well. I mean, as Save the Children, we also need to sit in the coordination groups, the cluster, the working groups, to ensure that, for example, regarding incentives, that we are paying the same amount. Because if some teachers are getting more than others, that can also create a lot of tensions. And in this case as well, the working group uh, or the uh, working group coordinator, UNHR, leading a lot of that, has the direct contact with the Ministry of Education. And then you have teachers in the host community as well. So what are they earning and what is the payment of them And if incentive workers in the camp receive more, that can, so I'm just like trying to pose the complexity uh, of the situation as well. Um, but definitely teachers have to be, we have to ensure that they have the qualifications, acknowledged, certified, if that's possible, the rights, uh, the confidence, the well-being, the skills to actually teach. I mean, there's so, yeah, a lot to uh, <laughs> To, to consider, yeah. Thanks a lot, because I mm. also, I think this um, question of why is there not more collaboration uh, is really interesting, and then it's important to look at the dilemmas as well, and to really acknowledge, okay, so can we understand it from your position, and from your position, because it looks very different if you're a Minister of Education, compared to an Education Officer for Save the Children, compared to a refugee teacher in a camp. Right. So I think that's really important. One of the things that to me has been most remarkable over the years is to see people who really think outside the box and who really are visionary. So the fact that now we have accredited refugee education in uh, in Kenya, I think, has very much to do with visionary people daring to go beyond the status quo. And that's also like in the next, I really want us to think like that because it's so easy to think about, well, these are the challenges and this is what makes it impossible. And I think one of you also said, well, this teacher just went beyond and was like, okay, well, still 
what is our possibility here? What can I do on my level as a teacher? But also what can I do on my level as a minister of education with all the restrictions or as a save the children? Uh, I think that's really important. But I was actually thinking within the audience here, are there more people who feel like, well, this collaboration with refugees and of course there's a whole question on localization which is now the new kind of we need to have localization uh, within the humanitarian aid um, but it's very difficult so are there others who would want to bring forward some of the challenges that you face uh, in terms of okay how is this collaboration going and that could be from uh, kind of refugee led or diaspora initiative versus an international organization or uh, what are some of the challenges that actually relate to this um, kind of lack of collaboration uh, between refugees, between national uh, organizations and also between the, the international? You can see I'm really pushing you to start saying something <laughs> and I won't give up. <laughs> Who would like to start? It's not really about the challenge, but it's more the question of to, to the panelists, not that I have yeah, other things to contribute with. But I have a question to Anne-Marie and a question to, to Runit. And to Anne-Marie, I'm just very curious to know more about your experience with these like newly arrived refugee students. Like, How do you actually talk about the challenges that they face outside the classroom? I think one theme that came up that you know students in the DAB, for example, they have very limited rights outside the school. They can't move, they can't work, they don't have citizenship, etc. I know in Norway it's a bit different. Of course, students have much better legal rights. But still, there's, I would imagine, so many other challenges when it comes to language and belonging and even the relationship with their families and the parents feeling also coming to a new country. So I'm just curious about how do you, as a teacher, and I'm sure you have to teach them, you know, like the actual curriculum, but also how do you deal with all these other maybe psychosocial uh, challenges and how do you also interact with parents? I'm just very curious to hear more. And one question to Runit, since Save the Children is a more like an international organization working on different levels. I'm also curious, how do you combine working with teachers with like advocacy work towards the governments? As like Martha mentioned, I think we often notice that INGOs are a bit shy in, the, in terms of like pushing the boundaries when they're working closely with governments that might actually be the ones that are enforcing discriminatory practices against refugees. So if you have examples around this, I would be curious. Uh, I start? <laughs> yeah, oh, uh, you went <laughs> straight for it. <laughs> Do you have an hour? <laughs> um, well, the, the, the difference in the situation is this, uh, that the refugees that I uh, teach, they... They have come to Norway and have most of them. Uh, they're, it's it's kind of like this. This is your new country. They have their rights are there. They know that they are going to live in Norway. Um, maybe sometimes they miss their um, old country or miss their like relatives, and and have hold have a hold this uh, luggage. But at least they know that they are going to be in Norway. So when they come. They have a really strong motivation for learning Norwegian, going to school, get an education and, and a job and getting out there. <laughs> so, so most of them are extremely motivated and, and so fantastic. I mean, they are the best students in the whole of Norway because they are so motivated and, and, and grateful and, and they just 
it's it's just a joy to work in this profession. Uh, but of course, things come up because when you settle down, that's when things uh, starts to you start to think about what has happened, about uh, your mother that is no longer here, or you know all the difficult things. Uh, so, um, as a teacher, you, you you know this by experience, and you and you see that okay now something has happened because you, know, you see it when when they come to school and they are really tired. They haven't been sleeping at night um, because they have nightmares or are worried. And so you need to have this whole other functions around you as a school to deal with with their uh, the things that come up and that can be problems with family conflicts that starts to to you know they want one thing they want to you know expand their lives in Norway and settle down and be young and happy and maybe parents wants to restrict them a little bit more uh, and there are the memories um, and they are vulnerable uh, if something bad happens uh, they can get their motivation can go fall like they don't if they stumble and fall it's not like only oh it hurt it's like oh, it it hurts a lot so they have all these psychosomatic reactions to pain for instance or or if things happen they lose hope so it's very important to be that teacher say listen it's going to be all right you have to motivate them all the way and if something is difficult you're just like no no okay yes this is very difficult now but look what you did. You had like two correct answers on these questions. This means you are starting to learn. Calm down. You don't have, you, you, take your time. This will, you have to put hope into their hearts that they can do this. They can achieve their goals. And, um, and also the fact that in Norway, school and education is for everyone. So you just have to hang on because there's always this, it's not like doors shutting down if they, oh, I don't know how to speak English. Oh, no, but listen, there are doors opening here. We can find a way for you. So that is so important part of what we do. But also um, that we, we see when they struggle, like really, really have big uh, problems. Could be with family and could be with memories and, and traumas uh, that we kind of put them in contact with with, uh, with medical help. Uh, and yeah, so many things more I can say <laughs> about this. Uh, that's, but, but in general, the situation is difficult because when they come, they know that they will stay here. But we also, we also have some... Mindre um, asylsökare. How do I say that in English? I think it's minus. Yeah. Um, sometimes their papers are not... Uh, kind of, they haven't got their papers yet, but they still start school, and and we can see the difference from when they get their papers and they know, yes, now my life is getting in order, and then how that changes their motivation from having like problems with sleeping, and then they oh they wake up. The most important thing is when they are struggling, we try to motivate them. Like, okay, you can be as tired. It's okay, you didn't sleep tonight. Okay, go there, sit there, sleep 20 minutes, come back and come and work with maths. Because it's so important that they come to school every day. Because it's the one structure, it's the one place where they can think about something else than 
the challenges and problems and traumas in their life, but focus on like focus on this multiplication, focus on this uh, this uh, topic that we are teaching right now. So it's yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I could say more. <laughs> I, I would like you to mm. say more actually, because one thing that mm. comes to mind when I saw this kind of full classroom in the dub, uh, and now you're telling me like, okay, this individual mm. follow up and. How do you have time? Of course, you don't have that kind of classroom, but do you really have the space to do this or do you create the space? or mm. how, do you, how do you manage that? You create the space. Uh, and since all of the students, they can relate to each other. So even though everyone is sitting there and wanting to teach math, if, if, if one is like sleeping uh, or, you know, everybody is sort of like, try to comfort that person. Shall I get you a cup of coffee? So the solidarity between them is very strong. They are very nice. So, so to create that environment where the students support each other and help each other and, and look after each other is also very, very important. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, regarding your question, good question. Um, I think it's, I mean, in general, and then I can give a specific example as well from my last experience. Um, I think it's always important to listen to the teachers, their concerns, because they have so many. And I, those concerns, of course, vary as well from country to country. But in Sudan, a specific case was that um, rumors started in the camp that people were earning differently, teachers were getting upset. And it's understandable. They do not have sufficient resources. They, I mean, they come to the camp with perhaps not even anything at all as one of the teachers I talked to who didn't even bring his phone so they have their concerns and what we did or what I did or save the children we listened to the teachers first and we tried to understand their concerns and in this case um, a lot of the concerns were around the incentives so we gathered the teachers in a group and we also invited UNHCR and UNICEF who were coordinators so that their messages can actually go up to the government <laughs> And in this case, we managed to push this incentive up a bit, which was good. So we, we tried to advocate also as well, of course, on behalf of the teachers in, in, in line with what we have as standards as well, right? And our coordination mechanisms and making sure that we're not running off doing our own thing. But we're also talking to the other agencies as well. So UNHCR and UNICEF, there were the link up to the government. And also, in addition to the incentives, we asked the teachers, is there anything else like, okay, um, in-kind services or extra food? or So trying to like meet them in between. Um, that's one example. But I think it varies so much from country to country regarding what teachers need and want. But I think the crucial is listen to them. And we also always have to do that. I mean, listen to the teachers, listen to the parents, listen to the children. If we do not do that, then we're not providing services in line with um, what people themselves want. And I think that's where we are yeah, not doing a good job. <laughs> so start listening to their needs and then try to, as much as we can, uh, program after that. Yeah, And advocate for more resources as well. So how do we do that? I mean, reach out to what's available, funds. I mean, we need also the funding, right? And yeah, so 
short I think answer. It's also interesting what you're saying there about kind of listening and understanding, but then also taking it up to the decision making level, which very often so this gap between what's actually happening and what's needed and then where the decisions are being made, I think is quite big and maybe not like save the children might not be in a position to actually yeah reach that kind of level yeah and also i mean there's so many stakeholders when you're on the ground and i think that if we only listen to the refugees but then we forget about the host population so in the case of sudan as well the refugee camp was in a village and the host population were, were right next to us and then if the services in the camp are better than in the host community school that would also create tensions right so we also we have to think about the refugee population, but you also have to think about the host population, and then you also have to map out like who's who's considering them and what resources are there, and so there the it's 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 complex. <laughs> yeah, thanks. There's a question there and then there. Uh, I don't have a question. It's more like of a little bit of a re reflection because. Uh, oh, by I the way, could people also introduce themselves? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I now work for Save the Children. Uh, colleague, uh, but uh, <laughs> but I also work for a national NGO in uh, in Afghanistan, and I work for a variation of like many different international NGOs uh, in humanitarian responses. Uh, reflection on like why haven't this uh, localization, which I want to call it, like what that's what we're aiming aiming for, as uh, Ronit um, put it. Um, um, I think it's uh, what I've seen is is a uh, is a uh, is um, distrust uh, on both sides. Uh, it's prejudices. There's a culture that promotes hierarchy, uh, and as a result of colonialism, we also still have, unfortunately, um, a distrust in own local populis, populis, uh, populations that people are asking and leaving the 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 how do you say like the white saviors to 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 do do their thing uh, and so we need to work on that because i've seen it and it's so sad people asking me like you fix no we're fixing this together so like it it goes both ways and like still acknowledging my white privilege uh um, so I shouldn't be the one saying this, but like I think the key is, as well, it's already been said, um, we have to stop the blame gaming. We have to stop. You the fault to do this. You the because I don't recognize uh, UNHCR and UNICEF. They are pushing. They are trying. Are they doing enough? No. <laughs> but but we still we we need to also give them credit. The, the big actors and help them. Give them give them the thesis, give them the results of research, like this is, this, these are tools that can help you to push the politics that we need to change things. And uh, these documents, this research uh, will help everyone, the politicians, and we know that this is largely donor-driven by, and by high politics, uh, and it's time-limited time uh, it's pressured. Uh, so this is how we can transform the governing uh, governance to work together by using your thesis, by using your research, and and giving um, giving the right people the voice, which is not mine. 
That sounds really wonderful. And I'm like, oh, I wish it was like that. <laughs> but yes, no, but I mean, I mean that's just a, a side remark. But one of the things that I think is is great, what, what you were saying about um, really recognizing also the position of, for example, UN. And there I think, can we find the individuals? Because these institutions are made up of individuals. And these individuals have very different posi positions, very different interests. And in any of these organizations, I've seen really visionary people who really push. And that's where I feel like, okay, if it's possible to make coalitions with different people who are in central positions and who see these things in more visionary ways and who are really interested in providing quality education, then maybe we can start there. And that really has to happen by acknowledging also what they've done and what they've, uh, they've achieved. So I very much agree uh, with that, but um, can I? Yes, you, and then a question. No, I I, t I totally agree, and I, I think there's a lot of important stuff going on as well. And and and, and there, I agree. There's always these visionary people and thinking out the box and how important they are. But I think also the system is 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 not encouraging people thinking out of the box because it's a very it's a very high pace system. Is there's a lot of things going on. There's a high t turnover of staff. Because like, I'm not in Bangladesh nearly as often as I should, um, partly because of a pandemic. But but every time there's new people, so so it's it's very like it's it's a, it's very system focused, and I think that's a challenge as well that we need to uh, to work work on. So it's very much concerned with sort of own processes, own structures, own programming and reporting, of course, because the donors have to get their reports. And if not, the whole thing falls apart. And that's, uh, that's understandable, but it's also a, uh, a challenge. Thanks. My name is Natalia Yirimeva. I work for the European Vargland Center and particularly with the Ukraine program. And I would like to uh, make a kind of practical reflection on the situation with Ukrainian teachers, and particularly answering Cindy's um, question about the role of teachers, uh, Ukrainian teachers here in Norway. So um, it's very important to understand the context. And now we know that most of the Ukrainians coming as refugees to Norway uh, are women, 50%. Many of them have higher education, or at least the most of them. And among those, many have education as teachers or were working as teachers before they had to leave the country. At the same time, while arriving to Norway, they faced the situation that they simply just don't have the possibility to immediately engage in the work as teachers, and they have to go through the registration process. Many of them intend to get a job as soon as possible and are willing to take any job available if this is a job connected to their education, not necessarily being teachers, just doing anything else that's better than nothing. And we also face a dilemma when the Ukrainian government was extremely active and the Ministry of Education launched the education process in Ukraine already a couple of weeks after the war has started, online education. And all of the Ukrainian children are encouraged to take online school wherever they are, even if they are refugee children. And here comes a dilemma. What do Ukrainian children do when they are, for example, refugees here in Norway, Germany, Poland, or any other European country. They're offered online education from Ukraine, they're, and they're offered normal schooling from their new home country. And in many cases, like in the case of Norway, this has not been integrated. Ukrainian Ministry of Education uh, is very specific, saying that Ukrainian children should 
first of all, take uh, Ukrainian ed online education in order to be able to return to their home countries. And we know that while being here and not being properly socialized and integrated, it'll be extremely difficult for them because we never know how long they're going to stay here. We also have Ukrainian teachers being here who could have facilitated the process the same way it's been done in Poland or Germany when they're being integrated into the uh, educational system, taken as teachers in the local schools where Ukrainian children offered local classes plus classes in Ukrainian or Ukrainian history with the help of Ukrainian teachers in place. This is not being done in Norway, for example. And here comes the dilemma, what is the best solution in this particular case? Uh, I was wondering if any of you have any reflections on that, but I have a particular question to Anna-Maria. Do you imagine cooperating with some of the Ukrainian teachers uh, as a part of the educational process in order to find the best possible educational offer mm. for Ukrainian refugee children mm. here in Norway? Mm. Thank mm. you. Mm. Um, I, I, my um, school, we, we only have the from the 16 to 19 years old students. Um, but we have just started out. Like three weeks ago, we had the first class with Ukrainian students. Um, and I know that they are also uh, following uh, online education, but um, we are trying to uh, like find out what it is and how it is because we lack a bit of information so far. But we also know that some of them are actually going to take their exams uh, this spring. Uh, and, and we already said, okay, we'll cooperate, we'll help you, we'll find a place and time for you to do it. Um, so, so we are trying <laughs> because, of course, we, we recognize that this is very important. Um, but as, as we have understood, that some of this online education is something they can do uh, whenever. <laughs> it's like they can watch uh, something uh, like uh, a video and then answer questions or, or write something and, and send to the teachers in Ukraine. So... Um, but we are still, I mean, if some students say, no, I have to do this at 10 o'clock because it's an online thing, I'm, I'm, I know that we will facilitate that and we are trying to facilitate it. Um, we just started up, so we are just trying to uh, find out what the situation is for the different students that we have. Um, but of course contact us because we need Ukrainian teachers so it would be uh, would be uh, very interesting to to if like say they are going to have an exam in mathematics it would be so much better if they had an Ukrainian teacher to teach them exactly the things that they need in order to pass the uh, online exam <laughs> that they are maybe or maybe not having this spring so um, I, I would say just Talk to me and contact our uh, uh, principal. For so we'll work something out. At least we are doing this. this. Mm. But do you have I any think... instructions from the government? No, no. But uh, we, we, well, no. <laughs> well, of course we have some things, but we can adjust it. We are. Uh, it's oh. it's no problem. At mm. least for our group, we are a bit on our own. <laughs> We are a sail ship on our own in Oslo Kommune. <laughs> lost, a little bit lost, but it's okay. We fix, <laughs> we fix everything on our own. Mm. Um, one more comment, yeah. and then we'll, uh, I can, we'll close yeah. the session. I, I comment uh, to that. I mean, I, I 
integration in the national system is what the um, what is recommended, right, in many cases. And I, that we know is also challenging, really, depending on the country uh, the refugees are in, what challenges they are already having in that country. Do they have the teachers to integrate them? There's so many questions around that. Um, and... Um, but I think that if there are alternative short-term solutions, for example, the online learning, that could be the case. I mean, but uh, again, it's, um, yeah, I think. Great. Thank you very much. I think people who are watching the program are really wondering what's happening. Um, I decided we're quite a small group, so I don't think we need to have like four groups split up but we do have so we have um, lunch at 11 30 from Mela Cafe for those of you who don't know it really great food um, so I hope you can uh, stay on for that and have some more informal chats but we'll uh, we'll take we have like uh, five minutes just moving and stretching and maybe taking some drinks uh, and then we're actually moving to smaller groups to discuss okay from everything that you've had today can we think about, okay, if I was a teacher, um, this is a visionary action that I feel I could be implementing, inspired by some of the great things that have been said uh, today. If I was the Ministry of, Minister of Education, I have all the power, what could I be uh, thinking of? Uh, and I think for some of you who are teachers, you could really get into that role and uh, and give some ideas of what a minister of education could actually do to make your job more livable. Uh, so we'll split up in, in three groups where there's a teacher role, uh, there's an educational officer for an INGO, and then there's a minister of education. Um, so um, those ones will be chaired by Zainab by Abdurrahman and by Hassan. And we'll set up some tables, two tables here, and then there's one in, uh, in the peace room. <laughs>